0: You are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Personal, energetic, dramatic. Garrett Schumann is an award-winning composer, internationally published scholar, and concert presenter based in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Over the last few years, Garrett has focused passionately on chamber and solo compositions, and his most recent collaborations include commissions from percussionist Andres Pichardo of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, oboist andreas osti of the lexington philharmonic and the duo of mezzo soprano megan enan and violist michael hall in 2015 garrett helped found the new music-centric concert presenting organization apex contemporary performance where he now serves as president and executive director
1: hey garrett how's it going it's going great rob it's great to talk to you for the first time in many years many many years many years I mean,
0: at least in person. On Twitter, it seems to be pretty consistent. Yeah. Well, Twitter is a is
1: an exciting place to be a composer these days.
0: You so. were like you. I mean, you had a project a long time ago that mm-hmm. w- what was it called? Mapping my musical Twitterverse. Yes, it was great for hashtags. <laughs> it was great for because it was <laughs> about forty five <laughs> characters long. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, I mean i was i was kind of following that and then that prompted me to do like my own blog based mm-hmm. on facebook i mean it was just basically a copy of your idea just with facebook instead of twitter i know I and know. uh mine was mine was a little bit more long form than than yours was but the blog, you know the blog lasted for a while but i just i kind of got tired of writing honestly yeah and it's then
1: a, it's a ton of work it's a ton of work yeah
0: and then when uh, when this opportunity came up to do a podcast, I was like, well, I'm basically just going to transfer everything I did. So in a way, the podcast is still thanks to you.
1: <laughs> well, I will take all the credit I can. Um, it's, no, I think that was a, Mapping My Musical Twitterverse was a really fun and important project for me to like, make myself do at that point in my Um, So, for anyone who didn't know about it, it's basically you're going through your Twitter followers who are composers or just musicians? It was anyone who self-identified as a composer or a songwriter. So, like, if they said that in their bio, if they said composer or songwriter, I was like, okay, you're opening yourself up for me to listen to things that you put online and made accessible. Right. And, um... I just made a list. Yeah, I went through um, everyone who followed me, so not people I followed, and then I decided that I would listen to three pieces just randomly from their SoundCloud or website or whatever, and write a hundred words about it. So, and and I think um, I ended up writing about like at at least over a hundred. yeah it was a lot yeah it was it was a lot like i the reason i did it and and this is reflected in the title and and i thought a lot about doing it again um and i think the five-year mark is not too far off from Mm because that was around 2013 i think is when i started doing that um so that would it would make sense to do except it would be it's it's a lot of work um but the reason i did it is i i've was feeling very frustrated about not having a strong connection with just what did the music that other composers around me beyond where I was. I, I This was when I was in grad school at Michigan, and I still live in Michigan. Um And I was like, where does my music fit into that? And I was like, well, the best way to do this is just listen to a bunch of other people's music and try to sort of figure out where it sits and where I sit with relation to them. So that's kind of like where the mapping came out of. Um, And then the Twitter thing, I'm, I'm very fond of Twitter. I love, I've had many collaborations that are purely began on social media. It's like right. how, how I keep up with people from a long time ago, like you or people mm-hmm. from high school and that sort of thing. I know I sound like I'm 50 years old. It's like I <laughs> <laughs> talk to my old high school friends. On, Back on in the Facebook. old days. Yeah. Um, but there was also, I, there's something, and I think since I did mapping my musical Twitterverse, Twitter has lost some of its innocence, maybe given it's, role in certain, um, world events that, um, we don't have to go into right now, but we're all thinking about, yeah. But I, but I felt like Twitter, instead of trying to come up with composers who I knew personally or composers who I knew, um, who were like friends of friends who were in the place around me, I was like, Twitter allows me, gives me the opportunity to connect with people I've never met before, stay in contact with people I know. And so that's why I decided to use Twitter as like the basis for this project of just listening to different composers' music. And yeah. it also made me feel more comfortable with the project because I didn't want to like pl- play too much into some of the norm, the more conventional hier- hierarchies that sort of tend to control the, like, whose music we listen to and that sort of thing. Like, I wasn't seeing who was being performed, whose orchestra music was being performed the most or something. I was like, Twitter is kind of egalitarian, although it's all arbitrary in a way. Like, I can just, whoever identifies as a composer and happens to follow me on Twitter, I'm going to listen to their music. I'm going to listen to the stuff that they've created. And, um... Try to make sense of it. And something that I really wanted to do was this. Oh, my gosh, I haven't thought about this in a long time. So I just thought of another (laughs) motivation. Excellent question, Rob. I was So um, I did my grad work at Michigan. You and I know mm-hmm. each other because we were both at Rice, and I hope we get to talk about uh, that in a moment. We
0: overlapped for just one year or two years? I think
1: two years. I was there before you, and I was an undergrad, yeah. and you were a grad student. So yeah. um, our experiences were a little bit different. Um, right. And well, I want to talk uh, about that later, but yeah. continue with uh, this project. But something that I noticed, something that was going on a lot in my life is like when if you're – a composer and you've been and you're listening to this um one of the five people who are listening to this and um <laughs> thanks for I, saying we have five listeners <laughs> i i heard chris walzak make fun about that so um i'm gonna follow right in the, his footsteps but um if like if you've gone to school like you go to student composer concerts and then <sighs> where I was at Michigan, there was a tendency for like everyone to rip into everyone's piece and just like talk mm, about yeah. why it was terrible. And that really bothered me. So one of the, when I did mapping my musical Twitter one of the goals I set for myself was to own, not to ever say anything negative.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, and I don't, I think I succeeded at that. Um, I bet if, if you read really closely, you could tell, what pieces I was into more than others because I would run out of descriptors or maybe seem to tread water a little bit in the writing. But I like didn't something that I was really blasted with in addition to other things culturally when I came to Michigan was like some really toxic negativity about trying to point out flaws and other in your peers music and that sort of thing. And I just didn't want to participate in that. I didn't really participate in in it, um, in my interactions with my peers at Michigan. And certainly in this project, I was like, you know, I bet I can find a way to talk about all of these pieces and find something good in them. Yeah. Um, something that excites me. And so that was another, um, goal of mine with that project. And it's still up on my website. If you want to go back and listen to it, um, I mean, read it and listen to the pieces. Um, but also just for myself, um, having experienced some of that, Um, judgmental behavior like invent a scenario where i could really move past it in the way i think about the other composers around me and i think in the long term that was one of the healthiest things about the whole thing in terms of my growth as a member of this community and like a citizen of the world of new music is um not wanting to be petty in that way which i just happened to run into
0: yeah and i mean i i feel like that was one thing that was very special about rice when we were all there is that for the most part, you know, of course with a few exceptions, but for the most part, we were all very supportive of each other. And, you know, if, if there was something to say, it was done in a constructive way and it was done over a beer and it wasn't just like, Hey, I think this about your piece. It was like, no, if you ask me, sure. I'll, I'll tell you my thoughts, but yeah, I, you know, and I've, I've been other places where that kind of culture exists and it just brings everyone down. So yeah, good, good for you in doing that. Um, Thank you. In this, I have, I have zero transition from that away to your music now. (laughs) I was going (laughs) to try to make, make something up on the spot, but, but let's get into, let's get into listening to your music now. So I want to start with a five note chord seen from the porch of a curious mind. Great title, by the way. Um oh, thank you. So the title kind of says a lot about what we're going to hear. First of all, uh-huh. the in, as you wrote in your notes about it, the piece is just based on a five-note collection.
1: Uh huh.
0: And that, uh, I didn't see the score, but just from listening to it, it seems, I'm going to get a little nerdy, um, it seems uh-huh. like a 01378,
1: is that right? I didn't think of it in those terms, um, but you're... Probably correct. Um, I'm not like the most fluent in interval vectors, so <laughs> I'm gonna take you on. Well, um, it
0: was. Uh... I don't know if you could hear, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. So I, you know, I just from listening to the piece, I kind of picked out because I just wanted to know what the what the uh, the chord was, and it's actually. A Well, let me ask this before I before I tell you what I think it is. Um, was that just how, how I mean, how did you did you just come up with that harmony and just heard it and figured it was something you wanted to work with? Or was there anything else behind it?
1: Um, pretty much it was how you described it. Um, I was commissioned to write the piece by um, Janie Parsons, the pianist for Latitude 49, which is a Chicago based, really wonderful Chicago based chamber ensemble. And she, they started at Michigan, and I knew her when she was getting her DMA, and I, I was doing my master's and starting my DMA. And she commissioned me, and i was spent a lot of time thinking about like the piece i was going to write and the deadline got closer and closer and so i have um i sometimes when i have a deadline or if i'm having trouble coming up with a more abstract or grandiose way of getting into the piece i fall back on this exercise that um, Sam Adler made me do when I studied with him Mm -hmm. in my undergrad. I did his program in Berlin and it was like, you can only use these four intervals and you have to write a piece and you can only use these four intervals. And, and, and I've done this many, many times. I mean, my, my music tends to be based on like small motives or, sets of notes and that sort of thing i mean obviously i don't i'm not super familiar with interval class vectors because i failed your quiz before what Um, but no but that's something i think about a lot because um, i think you can get and this piece is really all about um just taking these this collection of notes and trying to see what are the different shades that i can get out of it yeah. melodically and harmonically um taking advantage of the the colors that the ensemble had um they were pretty specific about so it's uh, latitude 49 is piano clarinet saxophone cello violin and percussion mm-hmm. so a puro on Piro plus but without the flute a saxophone and stuff which i actually prefer um yeah it definitely has i mean it gives the
0: piece and y- your your other piece that we're going to talk about was written for a subset of the same ensemble yeah. so this comment applies to both of those pieces but it it doesn't sound like your typical new music sound you know the everyone oh, has thanks. been writing for uh Pirot or something like that for a while and we just kind of have that in our ears as like that's the new <laughs> music sound and getting rid of the flute and adding the sax in there it just had it
1: just gives it this other quality that i really like well i think and with this with the five note chord piece they were like um it was for like Janie's dissertation recital, so she was like you know other people are writing really long pieces I really want to commission you like can you make it five minutes and can you only use vibraphone Mm -hmm. and I was like sure that's that's totally fine um I think limitations like that can be really helpful to sparking creativity at least for me yeah Um, absolutely and so then it became um really like a vehicle for how can I explore the sound of the instruments I have and so the notes um, this is actually an idea that I've carried with me since my time at Rice studying with Richard Lavenda um, where it's like when I had the realization that yes notes are important but they don't matter as much as a lot of other aspects of the music, yeah, and so this is a piece that kind of plays with that, where it's like the notes are going to be very strictly controlled because they're all drawn from the same set of of um, pitches, which are, you know, can sound kind of tonal but can also be dissonant, and it, it they have their characteristics. But it's really about like color and texture and that sort mm-hmm. of thing, and sort of. And, and the title came from at the time that I wrote the piece, I was in this class that was about cultural history. And we were reading about um, Renaissance painters in, in Florence and like the 15th century. And, and I was reading about the studies that they would do of like buildings and that sort of thing. And so that the title kind of comes from that because it would be like, here's a painting of the Duomo from the southeast corner of this sort of thing. And so it's like, it was basically like a landscape of this piece is like a landscape of these five of this set of notes right. in, in this context. That's of really the interesting. Ensemble.
0: Okay, so I'm going to tell you what I thought it was before. Um, it's it's well, it's actually a Balinese pelog scale. It's a oh, pentatonic scale. My God.
1: No, continue because I've got a great story. Okay. About this. So
0: I was I obviously there's no cultural reference, so it is it is a coincidence, but I thought that something that was really interesting, um and I you know, there's the only reason I know what I'm about to say is just because I've been living in China for, for several uh-huh. years. Um but one of the techniques of contemporary Chinese composers, because a lot of composers over here are still very much using the pentatonic collection as their primary uh, material in their piece. But, you know, to just write a pentatonic piece in a single, with that single collection gets a little old pretty fast. Um, So Mm -hmm. a lot of them have been essentially doing what you were doing with this piece, is that, you know, just kind of, Taking that collection and then applying, you know, different transpositions or inversions to the collection and then kind of moving through those different uh, pitch fields, almost like you would kind of write a harmonic progression. And, the, the you know, when you when you combine the different the different, uh, in the, you know, in this case, sets, when you combine them, when they overlap, you form these really interesting vertical vertical combinations that would not be possible if you're if you're just using the single set so i'm wondering when you were going through this and choosing you know which which transpositions which inversions you know how you're moving from set to set like from the different versions of the set was there some sort of systematic approach to that or was it kind of an intuitive process where you're where you're just kind of listening and, and
1: going forward in time that way. Um, it was definitely more intuitive. And I want to tell you the story that led me to groan when you said that. Uh, <laughs> okay. I had a lesson with um, Martin Bresnik as yeah. a guest at Michigan a few years ago. Um, and I had a lesson with him and I showed him this piece. And he, uh, again, you're absolutely right. I have no idea what about anything about Balinese gamelan mm-hmm. music, but... He identified the same thing. So he was like, we listened to the piece, and he's like, Garrett, you know, you did this all wrong. <laughs> Obviously, you're referencing Balinese gamelan music, but... The rhythmic strikes that you have in the middle of the piece—they have to happen at the beginning. That's how Balinese gamelan pieces begin. You just—the whole reference is terrible. And he like went on about how I like missed the point of the piece, and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like I just came up with these five notes, and it makes more sense. Like uh, I guess it accidentally overlaps with this element of Balinese music. But um, that was just that's just one of my favorite stories about guest composer <laughs> encounters. Um, I that, love that like clearly you're
0: doing this you did it all wrong yeah, and let yeah. me show you how to how to do it.
1: Yeah, and I was I was respectful and let him say his piece but I was like I'm really sorry like I don't I don't really know anything about what you're talking about so. Yeah. Um but it was it, it was not a systematic approach. It was definitely intuitive. I think what I was really focusing on was like How many different kinds of presentations can I do in terms of, um, you know, what can I do to make it more melodic? What can I do to to present this in a more harmonic setting? Um, How can I change um, the rhythmic intensity of the presentation? So it seems like we're going to these different worlds. But the amazing thing is, is they're all related by their notes and we don't notice that so much. Um, So I was definitely I remember I I compose all by hand at first and then go to the computer. And I remember like sitting with my tiny Moleskine book because I use those. I like them a lot. Mm -hmm. And just like writing out all the transpositions of the and rotations of it and that sort of thing. And um, seeing like where they connect and that sort of stuff, but really it was probably sitting at a piano and seeing like, oh, if I go here, then I can go to this transposition or uh, manipulation of the set, or if I go here, I can do that, and sort of feeling it out um, as I went. I so I, you I, were kind of looking looking at your materials and seeing like little
0: interlocking. Parts to each one absolutely. you know oh i have some common tones here so if i go here then i can move this way and so that i i mean yes that that is an intuitive like more on the side of intuitive process but i think there is still some a kind of
1: uh, a methodology you were yeah, using no, I, to get I, to get through it you're absolutely right i definitely established a set of rules for how the the pitch material in the piece was going to work. And I, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if I followed the rules a hundred percent of the time, but it was, it was my goal to do that. Um, and, and really like, like, Ooh, if I go to, if I go to this collection, I've gone here before and it went here. So maybe if I go somewhere else, like people will be surprised or something like that. Um, and, and really trying to just squeeze as much as I could out of those notes and, and not um and the instrumentation as well um sure so it's almost like creating a
0: like a puzzle or a maze or something like that mm-hmm. yeah so who um we're gonna hear latitude 49 and who are the do, do you have the names of each of the players
1: yes um so this is actually from their newly released album which is why i picked it to a. Uh, to have i also like the piece too it's not just because i'm tr- trying to help pronounce. so the album is called of curious minds because okay. they liked my title so much they wanted to use it twice and <laughs> which is the second time this has happened with me in an album my music has been on um and uh, the ensemble is Janie parsons on piano christopher size on percussion um in this recording Jacobson Woolen on cello Timothy Steves on violin and uh, Andy Hall on saxophone and, and Jason Page on clarinet
0: Yeah. So, we uh, we should probably talk about Bound. Uh huh. Um, and like like we said earlier, this was also written f- with uh, Latitude Forty Nine. Uh huh. And Megan Enan.
1: Uh huh.
0: Was did you? I mean, how did you meet Megan? Was that a kind of Twitter connection? Yes. Yeah, so I
1: I first met Megan through um, Twitter and Facebook. And I was actually originally going to work with a different soprano. Well, Megan is a mezzo-soprano. I was going to work with a soprano um, who I had known for a long time in Michigan. And then um, she ended up um, having a baby. And she wouldn't have been able to... This was my dissertation. So, like, it had to be performed at a certain time. And we couldn't reschedule. And I was like, cool. And she recommended Megan. And I knew Megan's name. And that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me Mm -hmm. because Megan has absolutely been the, she's like my soulmate, like as a composer, she um, really challenges me with, I've written, I just finished my third piece for her. Mm -hmm. um, And she really inspires me because she, she's a wonderful singer and is just an incredibly thoughtful performer. um, And she like with, with bound um and there's another very important person behind bound that i'll talk about after this um like meg uh, like oh, 10 days before we started rehearsing bound megan calls me and she's like garrett i need i need you to tell me what this piece is about and like i had never i'd like thought about i had thought that i knew what the piece was about but she like made me articulate every measure of the piece and like mm-hmm. What the notes were there for? What the? Because it's kind of a a dramatic narrative piece. Um, mm-hmm. It's supposed to be performed um, all as one. She like made me talk about the story and what the text meant and the notes and stuff. And I and I just never been challenged by a performer like that to really like account for every decision I had made in the piece. And it was one of the most wonderful things that ever happened to me. Um, I knew that I, there was a lot in the piece that like, I didn't really realize until I had to put it into words like that. It was very helpful for, for my dissertation defense as well. I bet. Does yeah. Have, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so advice to the d- doctoral composers out there, get a, get a performer to grill you before your dissertation defense. But, um, uh, and and just from that moment and also putting the piece together and how well she performed on it, I was like, this is a really, really special person. I need to do whatever I can to con- continue to work with this person because the feeling I get from working with Megan is like the most satisfying feeling I've ever had as a composer. Mm-hmm. So um, very um, surprisingly to me, I've been writing a lot of vocal music lately, just have opportunities to continue to work with Megan, and unfortunately, sure. that's been able to work out. The um that so the text for Bound um, was poetry that I commissioned from a friend of mine who was a grad yeah. student poet. I I saw that like that's not usually the way that
0: text gets written for music is commissioning by the composer. I thought that was really interesting that you did that. So it's a it's a friend of yours. I mean, how did you have some kind of say in the tone or the direction of the text or did you just kind of let your
1: let them go so um the poet her name is Lo- lauren clark she's mm-hmm. an amazing poet please look up her work Um, she's been published in a bunch of places she she was a, a grad student at michigan when i was um we would um have we when we were the first couple of years that we knew each other when we were both at school together we would get breakfast about once a month and just talk about aesthetics her as a poet me as a composer those were some oh, of the best conversations i've ever that i mean so good. she and actually the most interesting thing, I mean, I, I don't want to get all like social justicey but, um, in her education, she was really, um, I mean, I do want to get really social justicey. I just hope that this makes you yeah. um, comfortable, but, um, in her literary education, like feminist critical theory was a really big part of it. And that mm-hmm. just never was ever brought up in any of my music school, um, training. And so she really taught me about that. Um, which has been, um, gender studies and that sort of thing has kind of been a pet area of focus for me. Um, ever since then, I've also married a women's studies major from Michigan. So it plays a big role in our marriage as well. Of course. But, um, yeah. So I knew when I decided I wanted to write a vocal piece for my dissertation and wanted it to be, you know, something, something grand, something like substantial because it's my dissertation i i knew immediately that i wanted to um commission lauren i actually commissioned another poet too named hannah enzer who's a really wonderful poet based out of arizona um and i didn't use her poetry in bound but i've used it subsequently Uh um and just the idea i mean i learned i gained so much artistically from my interactions with lauren and the other poets that she was friends with and hannah who's actually a friend of my wife's um that I was like, I need to find a space in this project to sort of give back to them in this way. And also, it's so... I mean, for a long time, I didn't write... Like, an undergrad, the only vocal music I wrote was the musical that I did. I don't know if you mm-hmm. remember that. I remember that, that yeah. Yeah, um, which I ended up I think, writing a did lot I of go the text that? for. I think you did. I think you did. It was put um, on
0: at one of the, at your college, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was Yeah, very, I remember that. It was very stylized to, like, classic... Broadway musicals, right? Um, um, and it does not exist on the internet, so nobody oh. can listen to it. Uh, it's okay. Um, <laughs> at At any rate, like I, I had stayed away from a lot of vocal music prior to this because it seemed very stale. Like a, the composers around me were like fellow students; they were, you know. You want to do something that's in public domain, so it's like you do... Of course. Emily yeah. Dickinson, and it's like, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that, but it didn't appeal to me. Or you do, like, Sappho, if you want to get really interesting, or 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 you do something in a language that you don't know, which is a terrible idea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or even where's the translation from one language to English, which I just say, like, stick with the primary language. Right. Um, and, and so for this, I was like, it would be really cool to commission Lauren. And I, I knew her work really well. I had done some other things with um, some older poetry of hers. So I, I was just like, I want to commission poetry from you. I'm not going to tell you anything about what it needs to be like. You just create the poetry and I will take in what you give me. Mm-hmm. And initially I was planning on mixing and like doing more of a traditional cycle where it's like, Songs that are not connected and and sort of mixing and matching between Hannah and Lauren's poetry, but then Lauren just gave me this thing that was like so focused in its tone and really spoke to me. I was like, I have to make one piece out of this, and so that's that's how it sort of became like a a multi movement sort of single yeah. um, chamber cycle that's really kind of one big piece. I want to kind of like,
0: because you, you said a lot of things that I agree with. Um, (laughs) first, I mean, first of all, like the, the very first, uh, song cycle that I wrote was, um, I was looking around for poetry and at the time I was at Arizona and, um, Dan Asia, who was teaching me at that point was just like, just, just find some poetry. Don't, don't worry about the copyright. Just find some poetry. Worry about it later. I love Dan, but that's awful advice. Um, mm-hmm. Because I ended up writing something that I really, really liked, and I was using Sylvia Plath poetry. Sylvia mm-hmm. Plath's foundation is notorious for never giving rights for mm-hmm. for her work, so like that piece is just gone. I've had mm-hmm. it performed twice, and I really like. It's the. I feel like one of the movements was one of the best melodies I've ever written. And it's just it's just gone. I can't I can't use it anymore. So working with living poets, the, I mean, first of all, you know, like you said, I the pre uh, pre copyright era has just no appeal for me whatsoever, mm-hmm. and. I I get a lot. I've been I've written five pieces. I'm about to start a six piece with a a single poet who I've been working with for for quite a while, Anne Shaw, and I. It was just this thing where you know I was looking at contemporary poetry and I found her and I emailed her and she was like, yeah, let's totally do and like we have. She just like you, she's written pieces or she's mm-hmm. written new new poetry for specifically for pieces of mine. And um, I've I've taken stuff from uh, from old, older things from her. And we would really developed this relationship over time where like kind of like you say where you know your artistic soulmates or something like Mm -hmm. we we kind of understand each other in this really meaningful way and i wouldn't give that up for for anything Mm -hmm. so it's like it might be a little bit more work but take you know make the effort because working with a real life human being that can give back to you and has can tell you what things mean and can tell you how they how they hear it rhythmically you know like these are all Mm -hmm. so so important um to working with text and then there was something else oh yeah the just your idea of like going to hang out with someone who is not a musician Mm -hmm. and talking about talking about art or talking about aesthetics or whatever oh my god like all of all of my really really well i won't i won't say it like that but the some of the most meaningful interactions i've had have been with Mm non-musicians you know that really because you speak a different language like you speak the same language in art but you speak different dialects Mm -hmm. and it's and it's great to have that kind of oh well you think about something this way i i never that's just like wherever i wherever i'm going i always try to seek out non-musicians because you know i love musicians we're around them all day but that's the thing we're around them all day mm-hmm.
1: you well, know and i think i think like it's really helpful for me as a composer and i would forward this as advice to the composers you listening. give a lot of advice well i <laughs> Isn't that what podcasts are for? I, I guess. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. I just, I, I can't help myself. Um. I think that where something that's been very meaningful to me is like the challenge of having to sort of work out, okay, so like this, there's this one part of my creative process that means this to me. What's the analogy for this poet that I know? And like, how yeah. can we talk about the difference and like embrace the challenge of like some things working in poetry that won't work in music or and trying to figure out, like, how to bridge that gap or, mm-hmm. you know, accept limitations of the kind of creativity that you're particularly involved in. Um, and, and also just see, like, that the world of art is this really big place. Yeah. And music is a part of it, and it's a very amazing part of it, but it is not the only part of it. And and and, and staying grounded in, in, in that has been really meaningful to me. And I, I even find it... Um, within music, just talking to performers about things, too. It's a little bit of the... It's it's not exactly the same as, like, talking to a, a visual artist or a, a poet or, or writer or someone, but it's a little bit similar. Like, th- there are things that performers and composers care deeply about, but because they we think of them in different ways, we don't realize that we have that in common or something, mm-hmm. unless you reach out and talk to them or something like that. Um, one of the most educational most important educational experiences i had in my in my master's was going to a master class by jesse norman Mm -hmm. and she was just talking about like how to sing clearly and all the things you have to do to sing clearly and i was like oh my god this is so useful to like how to compose clearly and think of my ideas right. clearly and like, don't do things in my piece that create noise that are going to distract people from the important parts of my piece. And so opening yourself up to opportunities like that, I think are really important and not just being like, I alone know how to write this piece. I don't need to talk to anyone else about it, blah, right. blah, blah. But what I loved about what you were saying is um it's the, and, and something that I, I, I love to stress when I talk about my own music and, and I know one of the adjectives I gave you was personal is and yep. what that personal means. Isn't so much like me being like super introverted and like, you know, spelunking into my soul and bringing it out. It's about the, uh, <laughs> nice use of the word spelunking. <laughs> thank you. It's fun to say um, <laughs> it. It's the, like the, my personal relationships and like thinking about the people who are around me yeah. and being inspired by that, and and realizing that that music is a relational thing that is about connecting people to people, and and like thinking of it as a human thing instead of this like sort of um, museum piece ivory tower like object. That yeah. And and when you write vocal music with a poet who's dead, you don't get the opportunity to like. You know feel the pulse that came that comes with the words of the person who wrote them for you or, or re- wrote them recently or something like that so yeah. um to you know to talk to that again I think it can be really special to and also like on the subject of rights to be very like practical if you commission poetry you have the rights to the poetry exactly unless it's you're so terrible at, unless you're terrible at writing agreements and then um I have I've used poetry from a bunch of living poets in my vocal music, and they're all really excited about it. I've never met a poet who doesn't think it's cool that you want to turn their words into something. You know, some sometimes poets can get a little. You have to talk about like editing the text and that sort of thing, but right,
0: and you know. actually that was uh, that was a point with Anne, the poet I work with a lot, where I I came to her. I think I wanted to take out a single line of her poetry because Mm -hmm. it just, you know, it wasn't musically and emotionally, it wasn't right for the moment that I was trying to create. And um, I was really kind of timid about it, you know, like, uh, and I, you know, I kind of want to take out these couple of words. Is, Is that okay? And she's told me something that I've, I've remembered and, you know, applied to later projects. And she's like, Rob, you're not destroying the poetry; it exists by itself. Mm-hmm. Like this is just another way that it exists, but the original is kept intact. So mm-hmm. you're not you're not destroying anything by mm-hmm. by editing, and that's I mean that's a very open and great, you know, uh, perspective that she has that some poets don't. Yeah, but but that was that you are allowed to to have that conversation you know you don't have to feel like you're destroying something by by taking a few lines out of emily dickinson because you can't you can't talk to her you know but a real life poet you can go to them and have that discussion and and see if what you do you are doing is okay in their eyes or if it's like somehow degrading the the overall arc and you can have that discussion so yeah human beings are great to work with when they're alive.
1: It's a a little bit like, um, it's a little bit like remix culture where Mm -hmm. it's, it's not replacing the, I mean, it could potentially replace the original, but it's not like destroying the original in order to exist. It's just a new version of it. Right. And I, I, I imagine like their, you know, authorship is such a sensitive issue with composers that, that this, that concept of it being like, you know, multiple, iterations of the same singular object might be hard to for some of our colleagues to wrap their heads around or poets in the same way because authorship is really important to poets yeah. as well I've been fortunate like you um, to work with people who are really cool about like yeah do what you need to do to make this music make make it work musically mm-hmm. um, and so that's been important like with bound um, one of the Lauren sent me sent me four poems and like three of them are mostly intact. And then the other movements are just fragments of the remainder that like didn't work as a complete idea, but had wonderful like segments of text that were really inspiring. And so those are like the piece kind of works like they're interludes and then bigger Mm -hmm. movements. Um, And so it was really easy to just be like, okay I'm going to keep these three poems like almost. 100% what you gave me but then I'm going to chop this other one up throw it in in a salad bowl and see what I come up with and she was really cool about it so so we're going to
0: hear Megan Enin Latitude 49 and was there one more no it was just those two and the words are by Lauren Clark (laughs)
2: I'm gonna go get my gun.
3: Things I have forgotten.
0: talk a little bit about apex because that's something that's really cool that you're
1: doing apex contemporary performance um www.apexcontemporary.org that's apex a-e-p-e-x we use this ligature a as our logo which um is a problem it is a problem sometimes sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) it does look really cool so apex Apex is a um, we're a concert presenting organization that I joined. um, It was founded by a friend of mine who's a conductor named Kevin Fitzgerald. He's a wonderful conductor and um, he started it. Um, In the spring of 2015, I joined in the summer and we did our first concert in December of 2015. And basically what happened is we had both finished our grad degrees. I got my doctorate. He got his master's in conducting from Michigan. And we were hanging out and really lamenting how we didn't have the kinds of opportunities we wanted Mm -hmm. in Michigan. And we were like, well, why don't we do something about that and create something for um i mean for to be honest for ourselves that's what you gotta do for well kevin loves boulez and so there was a little bit of like sort of the the boulez thing and then i was like but kevin we can't get the cia to give us money because we're not in the cold war anymore and he was like what are you talking about and i was like go read this book um no so but but also like um, he, he's a native Michigander and I've lived in Michigan almost for seven years now. And Ann Arbor is a wonderful place um, with a really, really active cultural scene. And there are really interesting pockets of um, audiences that love interesting music across the state, but there's not really like an infrastructure mm. for new music here. There's, there's a really great group in Detroit called yep. new music Detroit and, um, But other than that, there's not a ton. And so part of what we wanted to do is like, why don't we do something that helps increase the amount of new music that's happening in Michigan and sort of like, there's nothing here. We're kind of on the frontier of, you know, Chicago is a great Midwestern hub for um, contemporary music. Cleveland has some stuff too, um, but where we are, Besides what happens in association with the University of Michigan, there's there was a lot of room to work with, and so that's enabled us to um, do a bunch of. Co- we've done ten oh concerts God. since December 2015. Yeah, we um, we like to work too much. So, <laughs> um, and and what we've tried to do um, is our sort of our focus is programming living composers or like master works from the second half mm-hmm. of the 20th century, you know, pieces that we really love that generate, just generally things that don't get programmed that much and composers who, um, are underrepresented either because their music isn't played very much in the United States or they belong to demographics that are not typically represented on classical or contemporary music programming. Um, we, we do care a lot about, um, trying to, um, program as diversely as possible and like it's 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 tough because we planned to do pieces by some composers and then like lost personnel because we don't have a ton of money and and had to do other pieces and that sort of thing but um um like we did with your student we did this really cool call for electronic pieces uh, almost a year ago um where we're just like send us stereo fixed media pieces we're going to make a playlist and play it at um different sort of kind of low key events and that sort of thing. And, and with that, we got an amazing, um, influx of pieces. And I just was like, Oh, this composer seems cool. I like this piece. And I just got to put it together. It was like yeah. a dream thing. It's like a programmer Whereas like, I want to make, sh- you know, I want to try to have as international, a group of people, as many different people as possible. And they were all yeah. great electronic pieces and the, and we played it at bars and stuff. And, um, it's, it's really easy to do as an event, but it's also a way to share a lot of different composers' music with other people. And then g- generally what we do are just pretty standard concerts, although we try to explore different venues. And, you know, we, we haven't been around too long, so we're still getting our footing a little bit. But we've had a great response. And, like, we've done performances in Detroit, in Ann Arbor, and Ypsilanti, which is the little town next to Ann Arbor, Um, and in Kalamazoo, which is over on the west side of the state. And um, we've had a great response, and we've been able to program some really cool music. And it's, you know what, for me as a composer, like I've always been really sensitive because I am not a great Mm -hmm. performer. So there are a lot of people who compose and then also perform actively, and I just can't do that. And so what I enjoy about Running Apex and and putting concerts together is, is sort of like my other way to yeah, get back exactly. to the yeah. music world. Yeah, and it's also a way for like I, there are things I have like things that I care about in terms of like the trying to confront the uh, lack of diversity in programming and stuff. And it's like this is my chance to put some of the ideals that I have into action, and and we've been able to do that fairly well we're not, we we could do a, a lot better with some of the diversity of our programming but i've been happy with what we've been able to do and we're always striving to do better and it's just exciting to have a, an outlet for some of these things like you talk about with friends about what you would do if you had the opportunity to do this and it's Go now do it like yeah let's have the rubber meet the road and see if it works and um you know, we do new music, so we sometimes get less than ten people at our concerts. But other than well, that, it's fine. Yeah, you know, that we're might build- happen, you we-, know. we like to say we're building an audience. So yes, of um, but it's it's very. Well, keep it
0: keep it up, man. I mean, it like I obviously you know I I really appreciated the fact that the you know my my student um her her piece was was included and like it was it was actually really special for her because that was the first. Mm -hmm. that was the first one of that, like where she got accepted
1: through a call. Oh, that's so so great. I didn't know that. It was was really cool. It makes me feel good. Um, yeah, I mean, she, she had a great piece and, um, it was really exciting. Like I, I went back recently and like looked at all the composers we included in that specific project. And, Mm -hmm. um, that playlist is like 26 composers from five continents. That's great. It's yeah. it's crazy. I I just like I just keep looking for more opportunities to share it with people because I think it's really cool and and that's an easy thing to do. But um, you know we'll we'll have to we'll have to get one of your pieces on on a one of our concerts well, someday. Yeah, we should. So that would be really. <laughs> so fun. we uh,
0: I I always end with the same question, and that's um, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Um.
1: Because I hated practicing trumpet. Well, that's how came into how I came into being wanting to do a composer, doing composing things. Um, no, I uh, I started playing trumpet when I was in third grade. Um, my dad had played trumpet, and I, so music was a big part of my life early on. Um, but it was not an It was I didn't really like love it or discover my real passion for it until I started playing guitar in middle school. This mm-hmm. is such a cliche story but i was in a band i wrote songs yeah me the too band, and that's when i first wrote music and i was like this is the most fulfilling experience i've ever had mm-hmm. um and then i was but i really like classical music so it was like songwriting plus classical music equals being a composer and that's that i was 16 and i told my parents i think i want to be a composer and they were like cool let's um try to find you a teacher, and I found a teacher, wonderful composer who now lives in Boston but was in Hartford, named Robert Edward Smith, who taught continuo at a couple schools in Hartford. So in our lessons, I would show him my pieces, and then he would um, go to his harpsichords and demonstrate things from, like, Purcell and Kupron keyboard music. So it's basically like I was taking lessons in the 18th century, but... (laughs) i turned out okay so and yeah then, and then that's uh, so
0: interesting i didn't i didn't know we had a we had a very similar story with like mm-hmm. the you know rock band plus plus classical equals and i was i was about 16 mm-hmm. when i when i first started really composing for something other than just the rock band
1: yeah and yeah I was affirmed, I took a class at Rice that really affirmed me because it was about Eric Satie and we read this book that was basically said that genius lies in holding on to your childhood self. And I was like, oh, I've done that because I'm basically still a 16-year-old composing music, so I must be That's, a genius, was, right? <laughs> was, Steve, was Steve
0: in that class? I think I, he was, I right? think he was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that would have resonated with him a lot. <laughs> yes, well, yes. What's, Hold on hold on to your uh, to your 16 year old self <laughs> that's that's hilarious absolutely so well awesome garrett i mean uh, you are you are pretty much a fixture on twitter so if you don't follow garrett by now you should go run right to your twitter and follow him absolutely you are at g-a-r-r-t
1: correct yes gart gart which is a, a nickname I got uh, in college at Rice because I was hungover and misspelled my name. <laughs> and I made it my Twitter handle and it stuck with me. So there
0: it is. There we Love it. Bring it so, all the way back around to Rice. Absolutely. And your
1: website is? Just my name, garrettshuman.com. G A R R E T T S C H U M A N N.com. And you can find me on Facebook and Apex um, Contemporary Performance. We're at a- A-E-P-E-X-C-P, at ApexCP. Or, and our website is um, apexcontemporary.org. So, and we're a 501c3 awesome. nonprofit. So if you give us money, it's tax deductible. So Nice. FYI.
0: Awesome. Thanks so
1: much for doing this, Garrett. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.